as we just saw in the baby dedication, many of us in the room are parents, which is a tremendous blessing as much as it is a responsibility. A responsibility to intentionally teach our children to not take that for granted. Well, I was with my son at breakfast not long ago, and he ordered a flapjack with ice cream for breakfast. And I said, no. So I thought, I'm going to go ahead and teach my son about nutrition. So I was like, no, that's too much fat and too many carbohydrates, not enough protein. And so I was telling him, you know, let's, let's get you some, some other protein items, and then let's, let's not have the ice cream. He's like, oh, oh, okay, Dad, that's fine. No ice cream. And I said, okay, well, good choice. I'm proud of you. And then he says, can I have a milkshake instead? And I was like, oh, it's never easy, is it? It's, <laughs> parenting is a tremendous joy, but it certainly can, can be challenging. I, I really spent time pondering this week about parenting, and this is not even a parenting message, but I still spent a lot of time just really pondering the, the reality of having children, having to teach them. And I, I thought about that because in this new series that we're beginning today, it's written by a father to a son. Now, not a literal biological father, but a spiritual father who is writing to his son in the faith. We're going to be starting a series today for the next couple of months in the book of Titus. Titus is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith. Titus, who was a young pastor. And so the series is called Reveal. And so it's revealed, and this is a study in the book of Titus. Joining, well, why is the book called, or why is this series rather called Reveal? Well, I'll explain if you hang with me just for a couple of minutes. But let me tell you about the book of Titus so you know what it is and, and why this new series is called Reveal. Titus, again, was a young pastor, according to the New Testament, in several different places, primarily in letter to the Corinthians and in Galatians and even in Acts, Titus is mentioned as the closest associate of the Apostle Paul. So we know from having been referenced many times that Titus was a colleague, he was a co-worker in the gospel, he was a fellow missionary of the Apostle Paul. So we know that from the New Testament. And you also read in Titus chapter 1 in the very first sentence, it says, of course, from Paul, the very first word, so he's saying, Paul wrote this. Today, we usually put, you know, the word blessings, or in Christ, or resting, or in Him, or sincerely yours, or however we're going to end the sentence, put, put your name on the end. Well, in the ancient world, you do that first. And so you begin by saying, here's who this is from. And so it's from Paul, and he says, to my true child and a common faith. And so Paul calls Titus his true child child in the faith. And so more than likely, Titus and Paul met at some point. We don't know exactly where or when they met, but most likely during Paul's second missionary journey, whenever Paul was going to modern-day Turkey as well as to Europe and modern-day Greece. So that was the path that Paul took. And so likely that's when Paul met Titus and share the gospel with him. And Titus received and believed the gospel. And so again, he's mentioned repeatedly. 
Now, we don't know exactly when, but most likely at the end of the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, it describes how the church was planted. And when the book of Acts ends, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Now, he was released at some point from that imprisonment. He would be imprisoned later again, but he was released from that first imprisonment in Rome. And more than likely, after that, he, and before his second journey, he went to Crete. Now, the book of Acts doesn't record, and the Bible doesn't tell us when Paul went to Crete. So we don't know when, but we do know that Paul did go to Crete. How do we know? Well, he tells Titus about it. And so the book of Acts doesn't tell us everything that Paul did, but it gives us a very good idea of where he went and what he was about, which was planting churches, multiplying, spreading the church. And so at some point, Paul went to Crete. He proclaimed the gospel. He planted churches. And so now you have all these churches. And so Paul leaves Crete, likely for another journey. Don't know exactly when, again, but we're piecing this together from what we do know in the Bible. And most likely, Paul then, at that point, left Titus in the island of Crete. How do you know? Well, he says so in verse 5. Titus 1, 5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and point elders in every time I directed you. And so he says, I left you in Crete, the island of Crete. You know where that is, right? In the Mediterranean Sea. South, you know, just south of, of Greece, if you will. And so right in the middle of the, of, of the sea is this island called Crete. And that's where Paul says he left Titus. Now, he didn't abandon him. He was likely there with him. But then when it was time for Paul to move on and go on the next missionary journey, he left Titus to oversee what was happening. And so Titus was a young pastor who was taught by Paul who was gifted by the Holy Spirit pastor, who was trained by Paul. And so he knew quite a bit, and he was trustworthy, because think about this. The Apostle Paul is now leaving Crete, and he's leaving Titus in charge of all the churches that are there to appoint elders. Now, we'll talk about that next week. What is an elder, and and what elders do in the local church? And he's to see off island, so that's for next week. But for today... In verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Just the introduction, which, by the way, is one sentence. One long introductory sentence. But what you find here is the Apostle Paul, throughout this book, is trying to encourage young Pastor Titus. He wants to build him up and give him more instructions and to encourage him. But specifically, encourage him to do what? Well, the book of Titus isn't very long, only three brief chapters. But in this book, The clear purpose is to get the churches in Crete to be on mission, to be about the mission, to be evangelistic, to go and make disciples. That is the thrust of the book of Titus. And so the purpose that Paul is writing this letter to his young pastor friend is to encourage him to get the churches ready to go and make disciples, to be about multiplying and planting more churches. And so the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write this letter to Titus, a young pastor many years ago in the mid-first century, so around A.D. 60, somewhere in there he wrote this letter. But the truths apply to evangelical community church off-island. It applies to us today to remind us of our mission. And our mission as a church 
clearly stated is to glorify God by making and developing disciples. That is what we do. We glorify God by making and then developing those disciples. Nothing else matters to us. That is what our mission is, and we're focused on it with a very singular laser-like focus as a church. Let's read verses 1 through 4, and let's jump into this book and this new series. And it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. There's an important word in verse 3. And that word, and I'm reading from the ESU, the English Standard Version, the word reads manifested. At the proper time, manifested. God did this in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God. Now that key word manifested is the key word for the entire book of Titus. You have to understand that word manifested because he is building the entire letter, the entire book, on what he's revealing here in this opening sentence. He then will elaborate throughout the rest of the book of what he's introducing right here. Now, the word manifest means to make visible. It means to make known, to reveal, is what the word manifest means. Now, if anyone here is reading out of the NIV, the New International Version, a very common translation, it's an excellent one, the NIV reads that he, of course God, brought his word to light. Now, the word manifest, it isn't in the NIV. It defines the word. It says that through his word, he brought to light. But that's what manifest means. It means to bring to light, to reveal will reveal what? To manifest what? What is being brought to light? Well, in verse 1, it says the truth. And then in verse 2, it says God who never lies. And so what is being manifested, what's being revealed, is God's truth. Because God never lies. And so the truth is what God is revealing. And so again, in the first part of, of the verse, it says at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching which God has entrusted to him. So the word he says, preaching. Now, when we think of preaching, we think of what? What pastors do on Friday morning or back at home on a Sunday morning. Well, that's preaching. But this word, the word itself is translated proclamation, which, by the way, some of your translations may have the word here, proclamation, and not the word preaching. Because that is really what you're seeing here is through the proclamation, God's truth is revealed. Now, what is proclamation? Think back to the ancient first century world. You would have the king, that he would have a proclamation. He would have a decree, and then he would give it to his herald. And what did the herald do? Did the herald go on the corner and say, this, um, 
The king says this. Everyone, please, everyone, please listen. Please, the, the king has something to say. Is that what he did? No. The herald would go on the corner. He would say, listen up. The king has a decree. The king has something to say. It's not my words. It's the king's words. I'm just the messenger. I'm the herald. Everyone, hey, everyone, listen up. Here says the king, and he would have the decree, and he would nail it to somewhere public so everyone could see it. And so the herald was the one that was proclaiming. He was the messenger. And he didn't do it quietly and sheepishly and embarrassed. He was publicly saying, thus says the king. He's the herald. He's the one giving the proclamation. That's what preaching is, by the way. And so any authority that a pastor has is not his own. It's from this. It's from God's word. I have exactly zero authority, if not for what I have that's based upon God's word. The rest of the elders will talk about this next week for the whole time. The only authority that we have to lead is based upon the word of God that gives us authority. And so really it's God's authority, and we stand on God's word. But here's the thing, we are all called to be heralds, we are all called to proclaim, we are all called to publicly speak and tell others what Jesus has done for you in your workplace, with your neighbors, we're all called to proclaim, every single one of us. And so what is this truth that God's people must proclaim to others? that has been entrusted to Paul and now entrusted to the churches that Titus is overseeing and that has been entrusted to you and me at ECC Off-Island, what is this truth that has been entrusted to us? The gospel. That's what it is. It's the gospel that's entrusted to us. And that's what we do. We proclaim the gospel. That very same gospel that you believed on that day when your heart was changed, that same gospel we proclaim every single Friday morning, and that I'm praying that you're proclaiming in your daily life because it's the good news. It's the news that there are people that are in darkness. There are people that are living, and they're so far from God, and they're stumbling through their absolute darkness and blindness in their life and they don't even know what they're doing spiritually and their lives are not making sense to them because they can't even see because they're blind and we are in the light and we can see them stumbling through life and yet oftentimes we say nothing and we see them stumbling we see them tripping up and they're in the darkness and it's on us to reveal the gospel to them. It's been entrusted to us, Paul says. And so this is what God desires, that we would reveal the gospel. You see, with Titus, the original audience, they were called to reveal, to manifest, so they were called to reveal the gospel to the island of Crete. But we have the same timeless truth. We are now called to reveal, to manifest. We're called to reveal the very gospel to Abu Dhabi, and then to all the nations. And so that is the theme. And so the theme of the book of Titus is revealing the gospel. 
That's what it's about, getting the churches ready to really be intentional to reveal the gospel. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to go through this book verse by verse, and we're going to see how would have, God would have us as ECC off island, how would he have us to reveal the gospel? And we're going to learn that we reveal the gospel in our church. We'll talk about that next week. We're going to reveal the gospel even through our foolishness, even through our mistakes. We reveal the gospel in our homes as moms and dads. We reveal the gospel. We'll talk about some issues with the home as well. It's in Titus. We reveal the gospel in your daily life. We'll reveal the gospel to the world. You reveal the gospel through your friendships. Everything about your life, everything about who we are individually and as a church is designed to display, to reveal God's glory, to reveal the gospel. And so that is what Titus is about, and that is what this series is about. It's about revealing, and what do our lives reveal? It's what's in here, and my heart is, my prayer is, that it beats fast for the gospel. And so you're thinking, okay, well, great. He's pretty much already done. He gave us the introduction. We know what Titus is about, and we know what the series is about. It's going to be a short sermon today. No, it won't. It'll be normal size. Don't worry. Now, we won't go long, hopefully, but it'll be normal. And the reason is that we want to look at this first sentence and really understand it. This first sentence is very important. These four verses, because what this is revealing here today is revealing the gospel with our faith. The fact that we have faith in itself, our very faith reveals that there is a God in heaven who is good and has saved us. So the fact that there is a church here, the fact that we have faith, that faith itself reveals the gospel. And so the reality is that God gets all the credit for our salvation. How many of us tend to think, even if it's subtly, that we deserve some of the credit for our salvation? Now, we'd never say it out loud, but subtly we believe that. But the truth is that the fact that you even have faith in Jesus is evidence of God's grace. It's a testimony to God's grace. So our faith itself reveals the truth of the gospel. And so today's main idea for the, this first paragraph, this first sentence in Titus, the main idea is that the faith of God's people reveals the truth of the gospel. And so the faith of God's people reveals the truth of the gospel. Let's read the first sentence, the first phrase in the first sentence. Again, Titus 1, 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Two titles that he uses for himself. The first one is servant of God. Now, by the way, when we think of servant, we think of the person that maybe lives in your home and that you, you pay them a decent salary and, and you care for them. And they're kind of part of your family and, and they help serve your home. They're, they're your helper. That's not what the word here is. He doesn't use the word for servant like you and I might think. He uses the word slave. That's the word he uses here. He says that I am a slave of God. He's saying God owns me. God is my master, and I want to be mastered by him. I am his slave. And so Paul's desire, his whole hope is to serve, to obey, to please God. 
And he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. So first, he's a slave of God, and now he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Both terms. So apostle means what? It means messenger. That's what the word apostle means. And so he says, I'm a messenger. And so he knows any authority that he has as an apostle comes from the very message that he proclaims. And so really, any authority he had as an apostle came from he whom sent him. And so it comes from Jesus. And so any authority Paul had, any authority any Christian leader has, comes from Jesus. And you see here, Paul is humbled. I mean, this man wrote half the New Testament, planted churches all over Asia and Europe, and yet he is humbled to even know Jesus. His faith is so squarely set on Christ that he's just humbled to even know Jesus, to have his faith in him. And so that is the thrust of this first sentence, is faith. So there are three truths in this first sentence about your faith. First one, number one, your faith begins with God. All right, so number one is your faith and my faith that we have in God, our faith actually begins with God. Second half of verse 1, he says, this is really good. It says that he is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So the words for the sake of means for the purpose of. And so he's saying that, that Paul has one passion, for the sake of, for the purpose of, the faith of God's people. And so what he has the passion for the most is to go and make more disciples. But listen to the word that he uses to describe God's people. He calls them God's elect. Now, I already know what some of you were thinking. Like, I already know. Some of you in there were thinking, all right, great, a reformed Calvinist sermon, finally. And some of you are thinking, what did he just say? Some of you don't even have any idea what the words that I just used. And others of you are thinking, great, I should have stayed home today. I didn't want to hear about this topic today. This is the, I don't agree with the election, some of you are thinking in your own heads. I, I, don't, I don't believe in election. Well, if we're really honest, when we have to be, if you are a believer in Jesus, and if you believe in God's word, then when you read something, you and I don't have the option to say, I don't believe that. We don't have the option. If, if Paul reveals through God's Spirit's inspiration for the sake of God's elect, if the words elect, if the word election, which is repeated throughout the New Testament, is in there, then we don't have the option to say, I don't, I don't believe that. Now, here's what you can ask is, well, what about election do you believe? Now, that's a fair question. It is a fair question to say, this is what I believe about election. But to dismiss it, to say, I don't like it, to say, no, I don't agree with that, is not an option for a believer in Jesus. Because it's in the Bible. I didn't write this. I'm just the messenger. I just delivered the mail. I don't write the mail. And so what do we believe about election? That is the question. Now, the word election, the word means chosen ones, and so that's what the word means. And so he's saying God's chosen ones. Now, some people, 
and I'm sure in this room, more than one person, when you think of the word election, what you think of is the word foreknowledge, which means that God knew he had foreknowledge. And so some people believe that God looks down the passageways of history, of even future history, because God is God and he can see past, present, future, all is one, clearly, because he knows everything. And so God looks down into the future and he sees who is going to choose him. He sees who will repent and believe. And so based upon the free will of an individual human being who freely chooses God, God then responds to that person's free choice and says, okay, based upon the fact that I know that you are going to choose me, I now choose you back, so to speak. And so now God's elect are the people that have chosen God. Now, there are people that believe that. And I want you to know that if you're sitting right here this morning in the Emmers Park Zoo, and if you believe that that's what election means, then I want you to know that I still love you. I do. I, that wasn't even trying to be funny. Look, when I'm funny, it's by accident usually. I'm not that funny. I, I'm actually, I mean this. If you believe that election means that God, that you chose God and he responded to your free will, then I respect that. I, I, I really do. I have friends, people that I love dearly that hold to that. And so I want you to know that I respect you, I love you, and this is a hard doctrine. And this teaching should never, listen, this teaching should never divide a faith family. It does. In a lot of churches, this teaching that's in God's word tends to divide faith families. And that, to me, would be an absolute travesty. In any place, in any city, any faith family torn over this is an absolute disaster. It should never happen. But I think it's heightened here because there are such few churches to go to that we've got to stick together. We need each other. And so it really isn't an option for us to divide over this issue. So I do respect you, and I'm telling you, this is a very difficult topic, and I'm the first to admit that it is difficult. But here's my question as we think through what this word God's elect means. Here's my question, okay? This is important. What is at stake? What is at stake when we talk about election, God's elect? You know, some people, I bet you in this room, I don't know, maybe not, but if, if I were to guess, at least one of you is likely, is when we talk about election, wh what you think is at stake is winning an argument. And you want to go and you want to win arguments and you want to be the one that shows that you know theology better than someone else and you want to show your theological prowess over someone else and, and your agenda might be to just basically win the arguments. And so for me, my question for you, if you're kind of an argumentative person about theology, is this, is are you trying to make a difference or make a point? Because there's a big difference with the two. There are people that their whole goal is to win the argument, to make a point, versus to make a difference for God's kingdom. And so let me tell you this, what is not at stake is argument winning. That's not what's at stake. And for other people, what's at stake is theological exactness, theological precision. And let me tell you, that's also not at stake. What's at stake with the election is not winning arguments or having exact 
perfect, pristine, tight theology. That's not what it is. You know what's at stake? The glory of God is at stake. God's glory is what is at stake when we talk about election. Your faith begins with God. Why do I say that? I believe firmly that our faith must begin with God. It has to. Well, why do I say that? In the book of Titus, chapter 3, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, but we'll get a quick, brief preview here. Titus 3, verses 4, 5, and 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, Savior, appeared, again, revealed, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It says that God took the initiative, and again, in detail here in a few weeks, but he uses the word here, regenerated. Now, that word is a big, scary word for some of us, but really it just means being born again. Jesus said you must be born again. So to regenerate means to be made new. And so the Holy Spirit takes someone that is dead spiritually and breathes life into them, and they're born again. They're regenerated, able to then respond to God who took the initiative. This is the Spirit's work. And so if we could respond to the gospel apart from God's initiative through the Spirit's work of regeneration, if we could choose God apart from God taking the initiative, a God who loved us first, if it's possible for a human being on his own, apart from God's work, to receive him, then we would deserve some of the credit. And we really would. But as it stands, God took the initiative and God is where your faith begins. It begins with God taking that step of regeneration, enabling you to respond to the call. God initiates your faith. So number one, your faith begins with God. Now, here's the question. Let's read verse two, and then I'll get to point two, okay? Let's read verse two. It says that in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, this is rooted in what? It says God who did what? Who promised. It's rooted in God's promises. God promised to save a people, and he has kept his promise. When? Before the ages began. If you are a believer in Christ, you have eternal security, you will not be lost. You won't be lost. You have security because God promised. God won't break his promise. It says here, God who never lies. God said he, that if you repent and believe, then you're saved, and my sheep hear my voice, and they're in my hands. This is out of John 10. Then he's not going to break that promise, and he's not going to unelect you because that would violate his nature as a promise-making, promise-keeping God who is trustworthy. And so here's what we know, that our faith must begin with God, and it began before the ages began, before there even was an earth, before you even existed. God had a plan, and that plan included saving people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So your faith begins with God. But again, here's the question that some of you are thinking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have free will? 
Does that mean that humans are basically just robots or maybe just puppets? And God is pulling the strings and, and we have no choice but to respond to him. And so are humans puppets or robots that are pre-programmed with no free will? Number two, your faith requires a response to God. So number one, your faith begins with God. Number two, your faith requires a response to God. In the very same sentence where he says God's elect, here's what he says, that we must respond how? He says that we need to know the knowledge of the truth. And he says for the sake of the faith. So he says that people that are of the quote elect must exercise their faith. They have to have faith and they must have knowledge of the truth. And so he is in the same sentence, in the same breath that he's using the phrase God's elect, God's chosen, in the same sentence he is saying that those elect must have faith, that they must have knowledge of the truth, that they must respond to the gospel, freely choose to exercise their faith in him. We are not robots. Humans absolutely do have free will. We make choices every day. Humans are moral agents. God holds us accountable for our actions. This whole inshallah that, that we live with here, this fatalism where it's futile and God is so sovereign that, you know, when I can drive like a maniac, because if I die, inshallah, well, you know what? That was God's will that I die. And so they want to take away their responsibility. Is that taught in here? No. Humans are responsible. We are accountable for our thoughts. We're accountable for our actions. We're accountable for the truth that God has given to us. We are accountable for, before God. We cannot say, oh, well, God is sovereign, and so therefore I can just live however I want. If I'm chosen, then I can just sit here and be frozen and not tell anyone and not care about anything and not worry about it because God is sovereign anyway. We can't do that. You see, the Bible teaches divine sovereignty, no doubt. But we also see there are many passages, including this one sentence, where we also see human responsibility taught side by side. We are accountable. Now, what's difficult is that you and I are finite, but God is infinite. And so when finite humans trying to grapple and understand the infinite, it can get very difficult. And a lot of times people like I was much younger, you know, when I was in college, but a lot of people can get very obsessed with having every I dotted and every T crossed theologically. And, and sometimes, you know what the problem is? God doesn't give us perfectly neat packages with every bow tied off. It doesn't always work that way. I believe that we need to maintain what I call a divine tension, where there's this tension where God's sovereignty is clearly taught and salvation begins with God and belongs to God, and yet humans are accountable, and we must freely respond to God's call to believe in the gospel. We must do that. You see, here's what happens. If you don't keep this tension balanced, if you lean too far to talking about, you know, divine sovereignty, 
If you, if you lean too heavy and all you talk about, all you think about is sovereignty, as a lot of people do, what happens is you lose your zeal for the gospel. It, it just it begins to get eroded away. And then you have William Carey in the 18th century in a, a very uh, Baptist environment where it was so focused on election and so focused on divine sovereignty that, John, that William Carey is saying, I want to go to India and I want to preach the gospel. And they're saying, sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it apart from you or me. And he says, that's crazy. God uses means. And so William Carey is known as the father of modern-day missions. He was the first one that left this, this unbalanced environment with what's called Calvinism. I don't even like these words. I rarely even use them because I don't think they're helpful. But he was in this environment where they didn't care about the lost. He said, I don't care. I'm going. And he got some support. And to this day, work continues that William Carey started in India. Because he maintained that divine tension that we must maintain. You see, if you lean too far on divine sovereignty, you will lose your evangelistic zeal to make disciples. And let me tell you right now, I don't know where you're at, and a church like ours is so diverse, but whatever you believe about this, if your theology diminishes your passion for the gospel, then it has no place in this church. If your gospel, or rather, if your theology diminishes the need for us to be accountable to go and proclaim the gospel and ask people to repent and believe in the good news, if your theology prevents that, then quite honestly, there's the door. Because we're a church that's focused on the glory of God by making developing disciples. We have a passion to see people repent and believe in Jesus. But here's the other problem. If you lean too far on this divine tension and you say, um, no, it's all up to me. I need to go save them. And, and, and you go into this unhealthy, man-centered theology where it's all about us and God's sovereignty is too diminished. Will you rob God of his glory and his sovereignty? And it becomes too man-centered. And so you can't lean too far towards saying free will, free will, because then it's man-centered. And as a church, we exist to glorify God. And so we don't want God's glory robbed of him. We want to see him glorious in election, but maintaining the tension that we are responsible to go and make disciples. Now let me ask you this even better question is, okay, if God is sovereign, yes, that's true, and we're responsible, yes, that's true, and we make free will choices, how is it possible that free will moral agents like humans that make free decisions on our own, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad, foolish or wise, we make decisions and God's sovereign plan can't be thwarted, that God still maintains his sovereignty even when we make free will choices. How is that possible? Well, I've read lots of books, went to seminary to give you a very deep answer that's going to change your life. Are you, are you ready for this? Write it down. I don't know. There's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know how humans that freely choose to do so much evil in the world, how God can still maintain his sovereignty and accomplish his plan and how all of that fits in, I don't know, but here's an illustration for you. If you have a first grader that's learning how to do basic addition and then you pull out a high-level calculus book and start teaching him how to do that, he's not going to understand it. And you can try and go step by step and try to explain it to him, but is he going to get it? No, he can't. His mind can't comprehend those high-level concepts. You and I, that's what it's like. We, we can't comprehend it because it's too above, too beyond. And so are you willing to let these two truths sit or stand side by side? Are you willing to have a theology that maybe isn't perfectly neat with every bow tied, and but to say, you know what, my God is bigger, and we're going to grapple with this, and we're going to be honest, because I'd rather have a big God that I can't totally understand, but by faith I know what I do believe that's clearly revealed, and I know that I'm saved by grace alone because of my faith alone, through Christ alone, for his glory alone. That we know clearly, and that we proclaim, and that is the truth that transforms our hearts. That's what we're about at ECC Off-Island, seeing God's glory displayed as we glorify him by making and developing disciples. We don't have to understand the mind of God and how this tension works out. We're just called to maintain that tension. And the more that we see his beauty and his glory displayed, the more beautiful he becomes, the more glorious he is to you, the more your heart's going to be changed, the more you're going to want to obey him. And as we read earlier in verse 3, at the proper time it was manifested, it was revealed, and now we are entrusted to proclaim this to maintain this tension that our minds can't fully comprehend, but that's okay. Lastly, as we close, just about now. So your faith begins with God. We must respond to God. Lastly, your faith ends with God. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let me be honest with you. If my faith had begun with me, and it was up to me to sustain myself through my faith, I would have fallen away a long time ago. There's just no way that I would have been able to sustain myself and sustain my sanctification, my growth, and sustain me through the hardest times. I'm telling you, God began the work in me. He took the initiative. By grace, I responded with my faith, and now he sustains me, and my faith will one day end it says here, grace and peace. Grace and peace. I've experienced God's grace, His undeserved kindness, and He gives me peace. He gives me hope. He's the one sustaining me. Would you really want it to be up to you? I mean, really? Would you really want your faith to begin with you and end with you? Or would you rather believe what God's Word teaches, that it begins with God? Yes, you respond. He initiated. You must respond. And yet, it will end with him because here's what's going to happen someday, guys. We're all going to die. And when we die, guess what happens? Your faith will end. 
You know why? You won't need it anymore. Faith is what? The conviction of what you can't see. And so when you're in heaven, your faith will be made sight. You won't need faith in heaven. You'll be able to see God. You'll see Jesus. You won't need to have faith anymore. Our faith is going to end. And we're going to have sight for eternity. And so it begins with God. We respond to him. And then it will end with him as he sustains us from, from beginning to end. Our whole lives are about living for God's glory. And that's what my heart beats fast for. And I wouldn't want it any other way. Where would I be without God, without his grace that was revealed to me? Where would you be if someone hadn't told you the good news? God gets all the credit for all salvation. And so the fact that any of us even have faith reveals the gospel. I'm going to ask you in this moment to honestly consider as we close, if you're here, and if this is the first time that you've ever heard a conversation like this, where you've heard that you are a sinner, and that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you, and he paid the penalty for your sins, because that's exactly what the gospel is about, that God sent his son, that we have broken his laws, that we stand convicted, condemned by God, who is good and holy, and we must respond to the fact that Jesus died in our place, was resurrected by the power of God, and we can respond with faith, respond with the complete turning away from our sin and turning to him, faith and repentance, he'll save you. I'm going to call the worship team to come to the front as, as I pray. If you are a believer, then I encourage you, just renew your faith all over again today. Because life can be challenging. It can just knock you down. But you have a God that's sustaining you from beginning to end. And, and if you want to understand everything that's beyond our comprehension, ask God to help you with this tension. But if you've never received Christ, you can do so today. Mark it in your card, and we'll call you, follow up with you this week. Father, we are thankful that you have saved us, that you began our faith, and you will one day end it. And I thank you that the whole time that we respond to you, it's because we see more beauty in you than anything else. We see more worth. We see more value in you, and we thank you for giving us this privilege of being your ambassadors, to go forth and decree what you, the king, has given us to say to others the good news. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for your son, for your spirit, and that we know you and can make you known. I pray that you would work in our hearts to pursue you more. Thank you, Father. I pray in your son's name.